Hello. Hi. Welcome to our first issue of Scout and Birdie, First Impressions. First Impressions. We're hoping to make a good impression on you. We hope, yeah. We hope this is a good first impression. Um, so to start us off, we thought we'd just talk about the first time we met. Oi. Oi, oi, oi. Um... So we met in 2014. Um, I looked up the exact date. You can find that little Easter egg in our about section on our website. Um, (laughs) Not really an Easter egg. It's not (laughs) hidden. It's in plain sight in the about section. Um, So (laughs) we met in a solo performance class at Columbia College. Amazing class. Thanks, Stephanie Shaw. We really love her. Um, <laughs> and let's see. I I mean, not very memorable, this first impression. Honestly. Um, I was like, ah, she's nice. Uh, don't need to hang out with her. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I don't think I like this person. <laughs> Uh, well, I never like anyone when I first meet them, so I was just keeping the tradition going. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we took this class, so we kind of got to know each other through these very personal stories. Um, kind of just got to hear each other's work before we even really knew each other as people, which was very lovely, actually. Um, yeah, yeah, like the more pieces I heard of Jen's, I was like, oh... I probably really can't hate this person because she's so lovely. I mean, you could make an effort, though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, we um, we kind of started inching closer and closer to each other in the room. Like, uh, actually. In we like started a- out on opposite ends <laughs> of the room and kind of, like, creeped over uh, bit by bit until we sat next to each other. Um, we we kind of just paid a lot of compliments for a while. Like, great job. Love that piece. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like when you look through your notebook that one time and you had written like little notes about how much you liked my pieces. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's, that's the big memory. And then, um, one day we got cast in to a show together. Thank you, Stephanie Shaw. Thank you again. So honestly, we really just owe Stephanie Shaw for all of our friendship. Yeah, basically. Um, wow. But we we found out. Um, then we went to, after our solo class, we went to pick up our scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went, we left the building. Um, we went down Michigan Avenue and we went to like this FedEx Kinko's that's in like a Hyatt or a something like that. Yeah, it was a, like a some fancy some sort of hotel. It was a fancy hotel with like a weird. Yeah, it's just weird. Back of the hotel, <laughs> kind of like had an a odd place. Kinkos. It was a lot of business conferences. I'm guessing happened there because of the Kinkos. Um, we got our scripts like very fancily bound. Yes, it was gorgeous. We felt like really posh, and like we had a moment of like. Oh, I think we're going to become friends. Yep. It was like instant. <laughs> we bound our scripts and we bound our friendship. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <let> bomb. <laughs> bomb. <laughs> um, 
Um, and yeah, so that's it. Um, that is our first impression of each other. Ah, uh, ah, uh, amazing. I'm so glad I got over my initial impression. I mean, yeah, I'm so glad I, I really had no opinion at first. <laughs> I had absolutely no opinion. I just assumed, you know, I never assume I'm going to be friends with anyone until I'm actually friends with them. I definitely never assumed that you'd be my Basharat bestie. Oh, <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Okay, so our first piece is by the very lovely Charlotte Hamilton. Uh, we met Charlotte when um, Jen and I both did a show called The Election Monologues, mm-hmm. and Charlotte was also in it. And we thought, wow, she's so wonderful. How great would it be if we could get her to be on Scout and Birdie? And we did. We snagged her. So she's coming to you with this lovely piece called What Words to Use and With Whom. Enjoy. Preschool is when it first happened, the mutism. I arrived on my first day, adorable, as reports indicate, possibly in pigtails, the half-Asian, half-Caucasian child of my parents, Dick and May Lee, and I did not say a word. At home, I spoke Mandarin Chinese with my mother, who is from Taiwan, and English with my father, who is from Connecticut. I spoke English with my younger brother, Charlie, because we were better at it than we were at Chinese. After all, we lived in New Jersey, where English is the main language albeit a sometimes bastardized version. But that first day at preschool, when I found myself face-to-face with two adult strangers and 30-something child strangers, I found myself suddenly mute. It happened the second day, too. In fact, it happened the whole year. I would talk a lot at home, get to school, and be silent the whole day. It wasn't that I didn't have anything to say. On the contrary, I remember having a constant monologue running through my head the whole time. In fact, I couldn't have told you if I was saying things out loud or not. My parents told me they didn't know this was happening either until one of my teachers, Mrs. Lee, who, according to my mother, was not Asian, pointed out to them. They all thought it was very cute and not at all a children of the corn style red flag. These days there's a name for this. Of course there is. Selective mutism. And it's characterized in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders as a mental disorder. Of course it is. It's exactly what it sounds like. Kids who can talk but don't in certain situations. But back in the 80s, mental disorders weren't so widely diagnosed. I'm not sure I would have even wanted to be diagnosed anyway. As it was, I didn't have to take any medications or talk to any therapists, though I would have just stared at them anyway. As the story went, the only time I spoke the whole year was to Mrs. Lee. I had hurt my finger, and I held it up to her and said, Ouch, a la E.T. It was all super cute and so 80s. The next year, in kindergarten, I started speaking. I remembered having a good friend in the class, which helped me to open up. I was even able to say the occasional word to the boy I had a crush on, Jesse, who had an awesome rat tail haircut. For anyone who missed that craze, it's a short boy's haircut with one long strand of hair in the back like a rat's tail. So sexy. Over time, I started talking more in school and even in front of groups of people. I had overcome my selective mutism. That is how my story went. The family legend of Charlotte consists mainly of the ouch story and that time I picked up chopsticks and started eating with them at the age of two. An eating prodigy. My memory of my selective mutism is spotty, so I recently asked my parents for details on my preschool experience. My mother told me the parts of the story she and my dad have always told, the parts that have become Hamilton family lore. Then she said, I remember going to pick you up on the last day of preschool and seeing you talking to a Chinese girl in your class. Wait, 
Hold the phone. I was talking to someone and not using the word ouch. This was not part of the legend. I only spoke one word the whole year, right? My mom said she thought I actually did speak with the other kids and that it was only my teachers who I was mute around. I guess that's still selective mutism, but frankly, that's a much less interesting story. Who was I if not a person who overcame selective mutism? Did I even know anymore? After questioning my parents about my childhood up to that point, I came to the conclusion that there was a lot of confusion in my brain about language. When I learned to talk, my mother spoke exclusively Mandarin Chinese to me and would not respond if I spoke to her in English. She did this because she wanted me to learn the language and not take the easy route of responding to her in English as many of her friends' children did with their parents. They ended up understanding Chinese but having trouble speaking it. My father spoke to me only in English and would not respond if I spoke to him in Chinese, although that was only because he didn't understand Chinese. This created a, a dynamic in which, until the age of five or so, I associated Chinese with Asian-looking people and English with Caucasian-looking people. An Asian person would speak to me in English, and I would stare at them blankly like they were an idiot until they spoke to me in Chinese. My father told me he once asked me what the Chinese word for fork was, and I told him I didn't know. Then he told me to ask my Chinese grandmother, who was sitting next to me, whether she needed a fork, and I did, in perfect Chinese. I didn't know the differences between the types of words I was speaking. I only knew that some words for, were for some people and some were for other people. And apparently, no words were for teachers. I grew out of this language confusion, of course. By the first grade, I spoke more freely to people at school, including teachers, though preferably not in front of a group of people. I even got in trouble in class for chasing my rat-tailed crush, Jesse, around the classroom. How quickly I'd matured from mute child to full-on temptress. Jesse and I had to stay after school together as punishment. That was not a punishment that fit the crime. Then, just as this fledgling romance was getting off the ground and I was figuring out how to put my verbal skills to use, my parents announced that we were moving to Tokyo, Japan. My dad's job was being transferred there for two years. After a goodbye to Jesse that involved him punching me in the stomach, that means he likes you is what grown-ups said about that, because back then, they didn't talk so much about the patriarchy, and also because it's usually true. We picked up and moved to Tokyo, another new language. In addition to their own written characters, the Japanese use Chinese characters. The characters have the same meaning in each language, but the words are spoken differently. That meant that my mother could communicate with Japanese people by writing, but not by speaking. I, however, was shit out of luck. I'd never paid enough attention at the Chinese school I went to every Saturday morning in New Jersey to retain any of knowledge of how to write in Chinese. In Tokyo, I had to learn a new language again. Luckily, when Japanese people saw me, they saw someone who looked a little Asian, but not Asian enough to speak to in Japanese. They usually saw it as an opportunity to practice their English, or to cry out, kawaii, which means cute in Japanese. As I mentioned, I was, according to reports, quite adorable. My little brother, Charlie, became a pro at Japanese, because he went to Japanese school while he was still at that young language acquisition age. At least that's what I tell myself because my elderly seven-year-old self could barely learn enough Japanese to pass my classes. And at being elementary school, it's unlikely the classes were as rigorous as I remember. I went to an English language international school, which saved me from being completely lost, and which was also probably why I couldn't learn Japanese. My friends spoke English, and I joined English language extracurricular activities. I joined a Christian youth group, even though I wasn't Christian. I did it for the social life. There I met another boy, Matthew, for whom I fell into a quietly focused, unrequited beginner's lust. The only thing I remember clearly about him was that his family supported Dukakis, and they were upset when he lost the presidential election. And by instinct, I pretended that I knew all about it, 
even though I'm not sure that I even knew there was an election going on in the U.S. Perhaps the moment I knew I had moved past my mutism, let's call it a partial selective mutism now that the legend has been debunked, was when I was given the role of announcer for the youth group's production of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. I was asked to give the short intro for the early morning production of the show, during the less popular church service, but whatever, and some other actual outgoing loudmouth would do the late production intro. I felt like I had fooled everyone into thinking I was confident and verbose. Success. After what turned out to be three rather than two years of living in Tokyo, my family and I finally moved back to New Jersey. I had learned a lot in Japan. Not Japanese, sadly, but more important things like how to use my words to feign political knowledge and seduce an unwitting love interest, how to enthusiastically introduce a musical about a religion I don't believe in, and how to adjust to life when you don't understand most of the people around you. This came in handy when I returned to New Jersey just in time for fifth grade, or that fresh hell we call adolescence. Here, everyone spoke a different kind of language, another one I would never truly master. Okay, next up we have Kai Love. Um, Yeah, we met Kai through... Also through the election monologues. Wow. <laughs> uh, so a great snag again. Um, yeah. Kai's piece is called I Am. I am painfully introverted, so when you see me, know that it took a lot of internal work to get me to show up. I am a social entrepreneur and professionally design products and services to benefit people in need. I am a genius on paper but cannot operate most of my remote controls in my house. I am talented, and it took way too long to acknowledge my own truth. I am a lover of music and hope to work with Duele one day soon. I am an artist, but support many other artists across disciplines. I am a good friend, but had to learn balance expectations. I'm pretty funny. if you take the time to get to know me. I am a sensual creature, comfortable with nakedness, who dwells in a constant state of desire. I am a supreme kisser and fan of beautiful lips. I am more animal than human, connected to the push and pull of the universe and responsive to the calls of the wild. I am polyglotism wrapped in a vocal accent, prompting the question, where are you from? I am a thinker and a feeler, so I score well on emotional intelligence tests. I am oftentimes too ambitious for my peers, leaving me alone with lofty dreams. I am a kite flyer and wish I had wings. I am compassionate and give all of me away all of the time. I am general and specific in synergy, which confuses most people. I am foresight squared and hindsight deficit. I am deeply rooted in the yellow chakra, and it's my favorite color. I am third eye aware and know that the ancestors speak through me. I am afraid of horror movies and have nightmares from time to time. I am clumsy and have fallen down several flights of stairs without serious injury. I am humble, not by ego's sake, but from making mistakes. I am black and brown and Irish, 
but I don't ever talk about the Irish side. I am an intensive lover, not a fighter, but those who fight me typically lose. I am human and subject to human conditioning, just like you, so my forgiveness pot is plentiful. I am all woman, full of strength and independence, but enjoy occupying a service and support role for my mate. I am not a crier, but as of recent, my tears have been abundant and full of purpose. I am a writer and try to paint my words with all 200 Crayola crayon colors. I am unapologetically a daddy's girl. I am a dancer, although I hardly dance these days and feel empty because of it. I am a walking billboard for body art and how its placement enhances one's physical presence. I am a mother, but haven't given birth and have struggled with my own worth. I am certain that if I created the world, racism and rape wouldn't exist along with all the other isms on my list. I am a nomadic wanderlust, never feeling settled unless I am somewhere else, but always thinking about the next place. I am communicatively romantic and believe its absence in modern-day relationships contributes to its failure. I am a complex ball of kinetic energy dusted with black girl magic that glows in the dark and provides guidance. I am fairly hyperactive and need to sit down sometimes. I am a better sleeper when someone sleeps next to me. I am too much for me sometimes and take oaths of silence. I am everything I've ever wanted to be and more because I am. Alrighty, up next we have Sarah McCartan. Sarah is one of our very best friends, actually. Yes, we love her. She um, always makes us laugh. Yes. She is just the most delightful human being. Um, and we're so, so happy to have her on our first issue. And um, in our life. And in our life. Yes, we love her. Um, so her piece is called All for Women. By the way, you're clean, if you didn't already know. I got tested yesterday after we had sex. Sometimes I'm responsible like that. We are putting our underwear back on to prepare for post-sex cuddles. Oh, all right. Good to know. Yeah, Thanks. I don't know what to say. This may make me sound like a careless asshole, but it didn't cross my mind to get tested after having sex with her. If the sex was bad, I would make an appointment the next day. But because it was good, I tossed safety out the window. Logic has been replaced with multiple orgasms. My general physician gives me a business card of a gynecologist he recommends. Here, go see her. She's good with the lesbians. It's a soft purple card with yellow and white print. All for women. Sturdy cardstock. I scan reviews on Yelp at my office desk one afternoon. 4.2 out of 5 stars. Close to home. Often runs behind schedule. Not sure I've ever heard of a doctor's office that ever runs ahead of schedule. I call to make an appointment. Two days before my checkup, I get slammed with my period. And folks, it's not light. 
Fantastic. Some unfortunate soul is scheduled to give me an oil change and a tune-up in 48 hours. I called the doctor's office. My voice is low and hushed because I thought the perfect time to call was at 10 o'clock in the morning at my office desk. I uh, started my period this weekend. Should I reschedule? I don't want to gross out the doctor. That's okay. Is your flow heavy? I hate when they say that word. It sounds like a lazy river at a resort. Uh, no, not really. Um, that's a blatant lie, because I bleed like it's going out of style. Then you're good. She's seen much worse, I can assure you. I shower every day. My vagina probably sparkles in the sun if it ever saw one. My room and life are a personal mess, but I will be damned if I'm going to be unhygienic. It's the least I can do for her. I leave work at four to get there early to fill out paperwork. The office is clean. I approve. Smells sterile, but with a hint of a Glade plug-in. Two women sit on either side of the waiting room with the reception desk in between. I migrate to the left near an outlet to charge my phone. The office is quiet as shit, so of course I drop my charger. An eager blonde picks it up for me and plugs it in place. <laughs> I hate when that happens, don't you? Uh, yeah. It's my only charger I own right now, so I guard it with my life. That's so weird. I misplace mine all the time. My assistant and I keep having to order new cords for the office. I smile and go back to writing my journal. The eager blonde is ushered through the door to the examination rooms, but not without waving goodbye to me. This woman is frolicking through flowers here and my palms are sweating. Nice. I go back to the examining room. My eyes take note of the woman sitting across the way from me, then to the coffee station. Oh, what joy. What do we have here? There are female condoms right next to the sugars and creamers. A cute homemade construction paper sign indicates they are free. I do not take one. If I cannot get my act together to see a gynecologist for two years, I certainly don't have time to learn and implement a lady condom. I'm called next. Gathering my items, I am led to exam room number two. Tiny, but still clean. Before the nurse finishes her first sentence to me, out falls the question I never wanted to ask. I'm on, my, I'm on my period. Do I have to take out my tampon? Should I do that like now or like later? The nurse squints her eyes and I notice her eyebrow piercing for the first time. Yes, you, you need to go do that. There are wipies for you to use after. I never want a grown woman to tell me to use a wipey again. Yeah, right. You're totally right. Totally. Sorry. I, um, yep. Okay. I'm directed to the bathroom. My palms are literally sweating. I am disgusted. Soon my cotton savior is in the trash. As I innocently stand up to pull up my jeans, the door fucking flies open. And who should it be but my eager friend from the waiting room? I forgot to lock the door. I forgot to lock the door for a restroom in a doctor's office. I never forget to do stupid stuff like that. Oh my God, sorry. I guess we just got to be best friends now. I let out a cackle that was too loud for comfort. Maybe because I was overcompensating for the fact my pants were halfway down my thigh. Back in the exam room, I'm told to remove every piece of clothing. While removing my tank top, I remember that I've been wearing Doc Martens all day and my feet are going to smell to high heaven. No, man, this can't be happening. Without even thinking that maybe it's not appropriate, I rummage through the cabinets in the room. I find alcohol wipes. That'll do. 
I plopped down on the crinkly paper with my bare ass and began cleaning my feet like a maniac. Then I lay down on the crinkly paper once more, this time covering myself up with the, not a gown, no, no, a sheet provided for patients. It's uncomfortable and unflattering. The doctor comes in and puts my legs in the stirrups. My heart is racing and my mouth won't stop moving like I literally won't shut the hell up about how I'm nervous, how I haven't gotten tested in two years, how I'm sorry that I haven't gotten tested in two years. Now it's starting to sound like an apology, like a Catholic confession. But in all honesty, Dr. Tam was totally cool. She let me run my mouth all the way from my breast exam to my pap smear. When the exam was over, I was underwhelmed. When she told me that I should be feeling some pressure as she pushed her fingers inside of me, I suppressed a strong urge to say, Oh, this is it? Oh, this is nothing. But thank God I kept my mouth shut for once. Now I'm just waiting for the physical letter with my results, because it would just make too much sense to call me on the phone. Next up, we have Sarah Conwall. Sarah is another friend of ours who we met during the election monologues. That was honestly the best day. It was It was a really great day. It was actually the day that we launched Scout and Birdie. Um, Isn't it fitting? Yeah. So We met all these friends on that day. We, we like, were talking to Charlotte Hamilton in rehearsal about how we wanted to do that like a week before and really like started getting our ducks in a row and then so we started ducks. curating lots of ducks that yeah. night yeah um so <laughs> yeah. um sarah's piece is called unrequited math love a pakistani woman's numerical autobiography age less than or equal to seven it begins with a fridge this is my earliest memory of numbers i'm four put them in order make a sequence and make sure to memorize them correctly My grandmother counts in Urdu quietly in the background while I play with magnetized numeracy. It continues with inductive reasoning, patterns, and skip counting in the back of our 1989 Chevy station wagon as he drives down Sealy Avenue. It has fashionable wood panels on the sides and enough room to contain our curiosity. 212, 224, 236, 248— my father makes it a game. Who can reach the tenth count the fastest, my younger sister or myself? Controversy ensues when both of us claim that we've won. To take our minds off how unreasonable we each insist the other one is being, he takes us to his local taxicab joint on Devon Avenue, Gharib Nawaz. We feast on samosas and mango lussies, all trivial arguments forgotten. She's four and I'm seven. Throughout primary school, we learn that affection similar to those cheap bouquets you see in supermarkets, is most long-lasting and fresh when bought with medals, awards, and honor roll bumper stickers. The last item, carefully and with much fanfare, is always placed on my mother's aging four-door sedan. This is our first introduction to emotional capitalism. Little do we know that this is the currency we'll be paying with for the rest of our adolescent lives. Age 8, less than or equal to X, less than or equal to 13. Fast forward a few years, I'm 11 now. He started treating me differently. Perhaps I'm to blame. I know it has something to do with the appearance of monthly blood on my bed sheets that I discreetly wash away in the middle of the night. Or perhaps the shame lies in the promise of curves on my changing form. In spite of my demands that this indecency cease and desist at once, my body is willful 
and does not obey. Math is not so fun anymore, not like it once was when we played ginty games and took apart VCRs and vacuums just to see how they make their parts move. Mine are moving too, but they're unwelcome, it seems. Now, math is work. So is believing in God. I am in sixth grade and seated at our dinner table with my father. There in front of me is an old, slightly moldy college algebra textbook that stares back at me with unfettered scorn. Tears are coursing down my cheeks where they drop quietly onto my hands. Waste not, want not. The salt water coats my palms and evaporates back into my skin where it will reside until necessity demands that it be poured out once again. Why can't you get this? It's not that difficult. He grabs the pencil from my hand and proceeds to angrily write out the solution. I am translucent, made of glass and ice. I want so desperately for him to be proud, but I cannot make the letters on the page mutate, change, transform the way he wants them to be. He slaps me hard and walks away frustrated how incompetent I am. While he's cooling off, my mother discreetly comforts me by offering a soft smile and says, There, there, you'll get it tomorrow. The heavy weight settling comfortably on my throat is impossible to loosen. I am unable to tell her that I never asked for this or wanted to get it tomorrow. Later, over mint chocolate chip ice cream and apologies, my father tries to show me once more the inner workings of the quadratic formula. I am resilient, fortified by sugar and childish hope that this time, this time, I'll make him proud. I move the numbers and letters easily, like a fine paintbrush on canvas, like a song, like a story. One that has a main protagonist X, the villain formula, and an enamored lady on the other side of equality just begging X to move mountains and inverse operations for her. I'm transfixed. What is a square root, and how is it equivalent to a fractional exponent? What kind of sorcery is this that gives birth to elegance from chaos? Like a dream created by fevers, I'm finally, hopelessly, and irrevocably in love. Age 14, less than or equal to X, less than or equal to 18. I'm a junior in high school now, awkward, defiant, and full of longing for a world that can never be mine. It's no wonder I identify so strongly with Ariel, that red-haired, impudent, copyrighted mermaid. What does it mean to be a part of your white world? I am envious of Julie's miniskirts and boldness, awed by Annie's perfectly painted face and aching for a boyfriend that flirts with me just like Jessica's does in AP Chemistry. Sure, I have my short-lived rebellions, elaborate schemes co-constructed with my younger and more daring sister, but ultimately my parents' expectations overpower our own. They have a full hand and unsurprisingly, as dependents, we hold only spades. We take turns covering for one another. We're fortunate that no handy electronic gadgets existed in 1999, as they do now, mashallah. The technology for Orwellian levels of monitoring by nervous mothers and brittle fathers has not yet been invented. We shape words like asymptotes to approximate truths. We vigorously maintain that we've been studying at the library. We engage in conversations with our parents that thinly disguise our anger and fear with submissive docility. No, Abu, that is not my dress. Julie, let me borrow it for a sewing project. Yes, we're coming home right after the study session. No, Ami, I didn't break my fast before it was time. Yes, I did better than Uncle Kamran's son on the ACT with a 32. I know I should have gotten a perfect score. I'm sorry. I forgot to pray tonight. I'm sorry. 
I can only recite part of Surah Al-Fatiha from memory. I'm sorry. I received a B-plus on that last physics midterm. I should have done better. I'm sorry. You can see the shape of my legs through the fabric of the skirt. I'll go change, lest I burn in hell. I'm sorry. And on and on it goes. When I'm 15, I recognize that the only means of escape is through two very visibly clear options, books or suicide. I choose books. It is early morning in my senior year at generic suburban Midwestern high school, long before the regulars arrive to tilt at windmills in their average classes. How quixotic. Jeremy Calvin and I are struggling through a particularly tough integral today, while the rest of our high school math team attempts to comprehend Riemann sums. We are preparing for a school district state competition and terrified of what is at stake. Our school pride must prevail or we are finished. Our partially developed orbits revolve around a form of miniature nationalism we've zealously cultivated. We are mathletes and elites, all of us in this room. We've been taught to wield our intelligence like fencers battling with finely wrought rapiers. We overcome foes through powerful overconfidence and cutting condescension. In this world, we're unparalleled. We're something. We're winners. We matter. But I'm smarter than the rest. I know winning doesn't mean a whole lot, really. It's going to look good on my college applications regardless, right? And so, with cynical optimism permeating my brain, I spend my teenage years creating a world-class transcript to build up a case for just how world-class I am. I am so very proud. I think primarily because I'm allowed and encouraged to be by school, by family, by the greater Pakistani community that we are somehow disproportionately obligated to pay lip service to, by some of my white friends who seem to be strangely envious of me, whole social institutions that exist seemingly to laud my success. About this, at least, I have not been given permission to examine, confront, question, or foment pride in so many other things, my body, my sexuality, my fractured humanity, my conflicting American and South Asian identities, and my crumbling belief in Islam and God. So I take what I can get. I have many accomplishments. I am not mature or self-reflective enough to recognize that I'm no different than Osmandius, lost in the sands of time. There's a silence in our home that can be heard for miles. I barter straight A's and honor rolls for the right to spend as little time there as possible. If I keep myself occupied, I reason, I will not notice my mother's increasingly crumpled face and my father's rage. Thick letters of acceptance start arriving in the mail. Harvard wants me to attend. So does Northwestern and, oh my God, the University of Chicago. My first choice as well. Arguments ensue. It seems that neither my father nor mother planned this far when they laid out the bricks for the pathway they wanted me to walk upon so many lifetimes ago. No! You will absolutely not be allowed to live on campus. You're gonna have to commute. You can study on the metro. Doesn't that sound like a nice idea? You won't even have to fight traffic on I-90. Besides, if I allow you to live on campus, how do I know you will not turn into a rundi like all your gore American friends? I know what happens in dormitories, says my father with exasperation and anger. No, I don't want you to go out of state. I would miss you too much and you know we can't afford it. I'm proud of your accomplishments, but. This is as far as this conversation is going to go, replies my mother as she chops onions into yet another simmering curry. I am so close to freedom. I can taste it. It tastes 
like sea salt and victory, like hot chutney and rage, like lychees and oxygen. So it's not surprising, to me at least, that my response to their stale arguments is an outpouring of verbs. I cry, whine, appeal, manipulate, scream, and beg. They're taken aback by my audacity. After weeks of this unfolding drama, we are able to reach across the aisles and negotiate a bipartisan agreement. We trade my purity for my freedom. I make impassioned promises to stay a virginal and chaste Muslim girl and superficially agree to an arranged marriage after I've completed my education. An informal contract is quickly drawn up and signed by all parties. Before they can change their minds, I leave for orientation week. My father drops me off on campus. His parting words on my first day of college are, if you do anything to shame me or the rest of your family, you will be disowned. Naturally, I decide to major in math and rebellion. Okay, next up we have our really good friend, Michael Lavalley. Um, he's going to be doing a recurring series on Scout and Birdie called When I Woke Up in Putney, a European Sexcapade series. Um, these pieces are a little scandalous. A little not safe for work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. The first one is called... On May 24th, 2016... I am sitting in a dull blue spring-loaded airport chair with a brown paperback journal open on my lap and biting my left thumbnail when I realized that 2016 started off fucking terrible. I finished 2015 already on the way down the hill. I had been out of school for several months and not doing anything with my acting degree. I wasn't even sure if I wanted to do anything with my acting degree. I quit my job at a shitty gay bar. I quit my second job at an Urban Outfitters. I was unhappy in my six-month relationship. I was unhappy with my body because my ex-boyfriend had the body of a tight, hot summer camp lifeguard in the face of Sam Smith, and I was still broke as fuck. But that one just stays constant. Around February, I started making moves to change my life around. I got a front desk job at a gym, basically so I could have a free membership, and also got a serving job at a restaurant in downtown Chicago where I made good money, but if I heard the words strawberry lemonade or chicken alfredo again, I would stab every guest and their mother on Mother's Day with a fucking butter knife. So two new jobs. Check. Awesome. Great. But I still wasn't feeling better. What I needed was a fucking vacation. But not just any vacation. I needed an escape. Some time to get my shit together. I needed to go somewhere out of my comfort zone, somewhere that would literally put me in a dangerous or uncomfortable situation so that I would be forced to figure it out on my own. I needed to go to Europe. The more I questioned this idea, the more it made sense. I started realizing how genuinely privileged I've been growing up. I mean, my family is just as fucked up as the rest, but I was upper middle class. My parents were divorced, but supportive. I got a good education, went to a great college my father paid most of. He was even still paying my rent at 23 years old. I mean, I'm a very independent person and have always been, but nor do I even ask my father for money, but I admit that I take things for granted. It was time to boot camp my life into being an adult. Over the next several months, I stuck to a strict plan. One, break up with boyfriend. I wanted to be single in Europe because, duh. Also, I didn't want any ties to the United States because it would help me keep a progressively open mind. 
I also realized that the reason I started becoming so unhappy in my relationship was because I was so unhappy with myself. Thank you, RuPaul. Also note that this process was not fun. I basically ripped the band-aid off of off with him and we don't talk anymore. We're like those cordial exes that are friends but don't speak. Understandably on his behalf because I sucked. Two, after every serving shift, put all cash tips in underwear drawer. Servers, bartenders, take note. This is an excellent way of saving money fast. I saved about $7,000 in three and a half months of working there, just saying. Three, plan trip. Easier said than done. This was the hardest part because like, where the fuck do you start? I knew the bones of what I wanted to do. My lease in Chicago was up June 1st and I already had plans to move in with another friend August 1st, so there's two months of paying no rent. A couple friends of mine agreed to take care of Wendy, my cat slash child slash spirit animal slash most important thing of my life, and my roommate at the time let me keep all my stuff at the apartment until I returned from my trip. I found a flight to Glasgow, Scotland for $250 one way, which is hella cheap, and I found out that two good friends of mine had already planned a trip during mine, so I just signed up with them. It made the most sense because they had literal spreadsheets of flight costs and hostel costs and the time it would take to go from tourist site to tourist site. Girl, all I had was a one-way ticket to Europe, so they practically did all the work for me. I just planned the couple weeks alone before they got to Europe and after they left, and the get-my-shit-together boot camp in Europe was a go. Over the next couple months, I worked and saved and drank my stress away in red wine. Before I could mentally prepare for the trip I was about to take, it was June 1st, and I was sitting in that stiff, spring-loaded chair at Gate H, flight to Glasgow, Scotland, boarding in 30 minutes. I was finishing a watered-down Diet Coke from my number 4 McDouble meal with fries from McDonald's, and had my journal out writing an entry when they called to board. The last thing I wrote in my journal was, I feel numb. We land in Glasgow at around 6 a.m. A couple of backpackers I met on the flight and I ride a bus into the city together after getting through customs. We get breakfast at this cute hole-in-the-wall coffee shop decorated with vintage cars and partways, each going to their relative hostel. I trudged up and down the city with a 40-pound backpack, apparently Glasgow is hilly as fuck, and make it to my hostel, show them my passport, pay for the room, which is really just a bed, and take a nap. And we will pause here so that I can explain something. So, part of my trip was having a yes-and mentality, meaning I wanted the full experience. Sex, drugs, staying up all night, meeting all types of people, art, music, sights, nature, etc. Everything offered to me, I vowed to say, yes, let's go, let's do it. Because even if it turned out not to be fun, I was in fucking Europe. The sheer fact that I was on this trip was enough for me to enjoy everything. So going back to the sex part, actually, so... Another thing I did for my trip was download Tinder and pay for a month of Tinder Plus a few weeks before my trip. So one of the features of Tinder Plus is that you can put your location anywhere in the world and swipe people for that location. So a week before I was in each city, I put my location as that city so that I can meet guys and set up dates and rapid-fire meet people to optimize my, my time. Also, I wanted to fuck someone in each city just to cross that off of my bucket list. So before I was in Glasgow, I had already made plans with a few boys. One of them in particular was a boy named Roddy. I wake up from my nap around 2 p.m., 1400 to be more geographically appropriate. I freshen up and walk over to the steps of the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery, Glasgow's famous art museum, and the location Roddy, my Scottish lover, and I had planned to meet up. 
He arrives, and I immediately start swooning. He was wearing a black t-shirt, blue jeans, and converse. His hair was disheveled, swooped to the left, kind of like Justin Bieber, but in this case it actually worked. And he was a ginger, and I fucking love a good ginger. He was also tall and skinny, which, according to my dating history, is my type. We walk through the art museum and make small talk. He admires the reasons I'm taking this trip while I secretly admire the freckles on his face. He takes me to his favorite tea shop, which you literally have to enter through a back alleyway. His roommate, Steven, joins us shortly after Roddy and I order tea, black chai for me, oolong for him. His roommate, Steven, is equally as cute as Roddy is. Steven was wearing a loose white t-shirt that hung on his body with a low swoop neck that daintily sat just below his collarbones. He wore tight blue jeans and sneakers. Definitely my type. Oh, and he was blonde, which is also my type according to history. If you haven't noticed, I clearly don't know my type. Steven and I exchange hellos. I tell him I'm from Chicago and traveling Europe for the summer. Roddy mentions that we met on Tinder and have some dates planned around Glasgow, to which Steven kind of starts to act puzzled. Then it hits him. Oh my gosh, that's where I know you from, Stephen says. We were also talking on Tinder. My hands immediately become sweaty and I have to poop. With my hand covering my mouth, I say in a laugh, Oh my god, I knew you looked familiar. You guys met on Tinder too, Roddy says as he starts laughing. Fuck, that would happen to me and Stephen. My embarrassment starts to turn to relief as I notice that they were not as upset about it as I thought they would have been. Wait, so like, this is chill. We're all good then, I say, trying to clear the air. Oh my god, yes, this is so funny. What are the odds? Steven says, ensuring me that the situation was funnier than it was traumatic. So I'm pretty sure in America, that situation would not have gone that smoothly, but okay. So we move on, and we end up going back to their apartment and meeting Steven's friend, slash boyfriend, slash hookup, slash who the fuck knows, we're all gay. We start drinking gin cocktails, and by gin cocktails, I mean they had the gin, and we ransacked their kitchen looking for the cocktail. We managed to find some Sprite, soda water, and grenadine. Delicious. So after a couple of those cocktails, we were pretty fucking wasted. Then Roddy has a brilliant idea. Let's take drugs, he says. And yes, I know what you're thinking, and it has turned into that Europe story. To make it even better, this was my first time ever taking drugs. A couple hours later, and after a very awkward interaction with Roddy's drug dealer, we arrive in a taxi at this gorgeous historic European loft with a bag of Mandy, which I still to this day don't know if that's a different drug than Molly, but whatever the fuck it was, I was going to take it. We roll up into this hipster-ass-looking party and pop open some champagne bottles. I met so many people and I can't even remember a single one. I remember everyone looking really cool and really hipster dressed in tank tops and flowy cardigans and high-waisted jeans and bowler hats. I'm pretty sure some of them even had circle-rimmed glasses. After getting significantly drunk off the champagne, Roddy and I each swallow a paper-wrapped ball of white powder. Here we go. Fast forward an hour, and I'm deeply massaging some random-ass girl's arm like we were in a Marvin Gaye music video. Fast forward another couple hours, and I come out of a blackout in Roddy's bedroom, riding Roddy's dick and jacking off Stevens while taking an inhale puff of a cigarette, which I have never done before, so it fully sobers me up. I spit out the cigarette in disgust, and it lands on Roddy's chest, to which Stevens screams and knocks it off of Roddy and onto the floor, stamping it out. I come and fall over asleep. 
The next morning, I wake up in a jolt, fully conscious and aware this time, but ass naked next to Roddy, who is somehow in his underwear, and also next to Steven, somehow in his underwear, and I just stop and take a moment. My head feels like it had been smacked onto the concrete repeatedly. Like, I finally understood what it meant when people say, it feels like I got hit by a fucking semi. Roddy and Steven wake up and we chat for a bit. They tell me I must have blacked out for a while because after the party we went to a club and danced for an hour or so and I got kicked out because I was too fucked up and was slurring and falling all over everyone, so that's awesome. I look at Roddy and Steven and I realize how happy I am in this moment. Day one of my trip and I have already taken drugs and have had a threesome. So far, Europe is making one hell of a first impression. New friend of ours, um, who happens to know one of our other lovely performers uh, for this this thing. So <laughs> all the little connections coming yeah. together. Um, she has three poems that she wrote for this issue of Scout and Birdie, but. Only two of them were recorded. Yes, so there's going to be a little extra bonus for you on the website if you go to her page. Body of Work by Emily Matapusi Para. I want you to see me for what my words are. Who am I? It doesn't matter. Don't peek at the cruel facts that will be on my gravestone. My carbon body will be sheathed in earthworms, but you'll find me illuminated in black ink and reams of white. I don't want to stand in front of you wearing my skin. You'd see my skull peeking out through my teeth, my bones garbed in lump-afflicted flesh. You'd see fabric pulling taut over my breasts and moles and collapsed veins. You'd breathe in my pheromones, exuded without permission. My blood will be pumping, lymph pulsing from node to node. Clothe me in quatrains instead. The body degrades. My writing exudes no epiphanies. Poems stay on pristine paper until coffee spills or air pollutes. Then they get printed again, ink resting on crisp new vellum soles. I don't want you to stand before me every day until my skin grows gossamer and paper thin. If you did, you would see each hair in my head turn as white as poetry pages. My body of work will not be reborn. In the Future, I Will Forget, by Emily Matapusi-Para. Oh, hi there, person who I never want to see again. Fancy seeing you here, in this place where I come all the time, and you are an interloper. It's my restaurant, post office, yoga class, bar, coffee shop, party, sidewalk in front of my own house, and you are uninvited. Yet you act as if you have the right to be here to walk these streets, breathe this air, inhabit these thoughts. Just return to that perfect life without me, our non-intersecting Venn diagram. Fade of all ex-lovers, ex-best friends, and fade ex-nihilo. I'll do my part and pretend I don't see you. It will be a delightful future when I need not pretend, when I've forgotten your name, face, and smell, and pass by you blithely. Um, Jen is mad at me right now currently because I have no cute song to intro her with. Um, but it's not my fault that she's better at writing songs than me. Jen. 
Anyway, here's Jennifer Keel's piece called Miniatures. David is a person who picks up on what you're putting out and mirrors it. On this day, my energy is like a fur coat, dramatic, silly, and slightly obnoxious. He puts it on and we shimmy and laugh and wander around the city killing time. This feels better than anything I've done intentionally lately. I am light and springy. Chicago in January is a marvel. Gray and sharp, bitter and uniting. I feel seen beneath my meat carcass and I wonder if he'll try to kiss me, but I don't think he will. We're going to see the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I've never been before. Sometimes I'm embarrassed about how little I know about music. I like it. I enjoy it. I like the way it makes me feel, but I don't collect facts. I don't retain names. I'm not knowledgeable. I played the clarinet for a while and made a solid attempt at guitar, but it's really not my medium. I'm a listener. I like listening. I don't like making noise. We climb the stairs up to the lower balcony. I like it up here. It makes me feel small and large at the same time. The CSO is golden yellow, accented by red carpets, and the whole thing seems to shimmer. As the orchestra tunes, I show David how my Alexander Technique instructor taught me to sit in a chair. Sit near the edge, elongate the spine, imagine a string pulling upward from the crown of your head. Relax your arms, place your hands, palms down, gently on your thighs. Relax your jaw so that your tongue is loose. Sitting this way focuses your mind. It's powerful. In the stillness, in the safety of the lower balcony, my mind starts to relax, to relinquish control. I breathe in and out. The variation between the temperature of my legs and my hands dissipates until I'm not sure where one begins and the other ends. My nose adjusts to the stale air and the rose perfume of the woman in front of me. I am present. They begin playing and my eyes focus on the glimmer of the moving parts below. It's beautiful. There's a young man in the percussion section. He gets up and walks down to the triangle, rings, 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 then goes back and sits down. That's his job. That's his role. He almost falls out of his chair. I wonder if he's embarrassed. I wonder how much time he's put into all of this. How much time did it take to get to the point where he's good enough to sit there, to play here for me and the hundreds of others here? I think about how long it's taken for all of them. The hundreds of thousands of collective hours that have been put in to make this moment. There's a violinist with a large ring on her finger and I wonder what it must have been like when she first got engaged. How proud she must have been of that ring and how odd it must have felt to position her fingers with this new weight settled upon them. They look like the miniatures that I love at the Art Institute. The miniatures are my favorite. I remember when I learned to sit this way, how excited I was, how hard I practiced. I was 18 and living in London. I think about the day I wandered the city, the day I wandered into a dingy pub engulfed in yellow, both in light and smell. I drank a cider and read. 
A disheveled man with brown eyes and peppery scruff smiled at me. He smelled like sweat and mold, the kind of mold that is permanently weaved into the fabric of the clothes from being washed without properly drying. He tries to start a conversation, and I politely shut it down and focus on reading my book. A while later, I'm still reading, and he's sitting a table over, and he begins coughing. At first, I ignore it, but then it gets louder and violent, and I look over and notice blood dripping onto his dingy, once-white undershirt. I get up, and he says, it's fine. He says, I'll walk to the hospital. He says, it's only a few streets away. He coughs, and a splattering of blood lands on my black and white striped shirt. I walk with him. I walk, and he keeps coughing, and I hand him a microfiber eyeglass cloth from my bag for him to wipe his face on, and I feel bad that I was dismissive of him. He looks like my dad. When we get there, he's rushed inside, and I go to the bathroom to wash my hands. The soap turns a light shade of lavender as it mixes with the blood. I place my hands under the dryer, shiver at the warmth, and watch as my loose skin moves about. I go to the waiting area. I sit and wait in a leather chair that reminds me of an airport. I wait and I practice sitting up straight, supporting my spine, placing my hands gently on my thighs, relaxing my jaw. I sit and I wait. It's not long, maybe an hour before a doctor comes out and tells me he died. She says, I'm so sorry for your loss. She asks, what's his name? I think he told me his name, but I can't remember it. I tell her that I don't know. I tell her that I just met him. I tell her that I'm sorry. I get up. I exit through the automatic doors. The air is muggy and hard to breathe. I look around and try to figure out how I got here. I walk home to my tiny shoebox of an apartment. I take off my shirt and go down the hall to our communal kitchen to try to rub the blood out of the white stripes. I go back to my room and hang the shirt to dry on my door handle and lay down. I think about the time he put in to make this moment. I wonder what he looked like as a child. I wonder what his parents were like. I wonder if he's ever been loved. I wonder when he began to slouch. I think about all the hours he spent trying only to end up speckled with gray and alone. I try to remember his name and I can't. It doesn't feel beautiful at all. All right, so our next piece comes to you from David Stobie. Mm, He gives the best bear hugs. Yep. Um, David's a good friend of ours, um, and we're really, really excited to have him on board for this first issue. This is our last piece of the podcast. Ah, ah, amazing. So, um, please enjoy Yelp. I have been to very good restaurants with many octopus and expensive sea salt. Salmon steaks seared before my very eyes while onion volcanoes eject oil plumes. I recommend these places for their atmosphere, for the steak that my neighbor, 
one table over instantly grams. That and the way the light reflects off her stuffed red pepper. Her date said, it's crafted like a Jackson Pollock. I'm heaving at this point. That's explosive. I'm gonna throw up. I'm getting food poisoning from all this bullshit. You can romanticize the geometry at the Art Institute. The antennas on tops of the buildings, which I'm pretty sure are used for aliens. If I had the power, I'd ask them about French kissing, if they know what that is. I'm remembering the eighth grade. I was infatuated with things I didn't know. I would have asked, what would happen if I sucked her collarbone behind the backstage curtain? It's what I did. It's where I found a blackberry stain on the skin just above the nipple. And at a certain point, I know that I thought, who actually wants a hickey? Do people really want them or want them for what they symbolize? An awakening in the gravel parking lot under the power lines. Because if I reviewed my first hickey, I'd give it a one star like a remake of a cult classic. Some mornings, skillets and your father are worthwhile. Seeing anybody, he asks, while a handful of gravel is clicking in his voice. As I'm nodding in her room, she's telling me about everyone in every picture clinging to the wall like a question she wouldn't want to answer at the moment, for that tall drink of water has red hair and isn't here and hasn't made an effort to make himself known. Country music told me about a person like this, the button she's pushing and the tires she'll slash so next time he'll think before he cheats. I haven't heard much about the other way around, but when it's wrong, it's oh so right. Country music told me about bad boys. Country music told me about women, and so did my father, whom acts like they're subtracted from Adam, and Johnny Cash, who sang to my papa about the color black, about all those white lines you walk in the flashing of the red and blue, but not what romance is besides dinner. He died an old hard raisin of expectation following after his wife, who was ahead of her own funeral. His, too, who fit his tux like her box three years prior. She did everything. Disney told me if I rub a lamp, I'll be Aladdin. My mother wipes the floor like an orphan. She says movies are liars. Cats are sexy. Cats can be romanticized with horses and Jodie Foster. Reagan is fine, though, and this isn't the 80s, which fell in love with the 90s, like Six was afraid of Seven, but Seven was so nervous because Six was really good at the clarinet, so Seven asked her out for peanut butter and jellies under the pavilion while it rained, which totally wasn't planned, but she said yes, and they talked about their passions until they became boyfriend-girlfriend, and they dated for a while, and Seven left town for college, and they're not friends on Facebook anymore, but that's fine. High school is over. I've been thinking about the things people do for attention, like push-ups, or Snapchat, or sauntering, like magic panthers on a sleek marble counter, naked in all your face paint, all that glitter, that invisible scent from just beneath your jawline. Son of a bitch, all the things we do for that look. That I want you in all your objectivity right now look. People lose their sanity when they don't get it. Guys with goatees and chin strap beards have punched walls over it. People have left town without it. And I'd like to give a kiss just under your 90s choker of Nickelodeon and Wonder Balls and 98 degrees of bedroom heat. And after, you'll see nothing but the ceiling. So you pick up your shoes and walk to the elevator. It's all goosebumps and goofy when you thought you knew what someone sold you. It's all so raven and rugrats when you did the same. I've learned that people like me won't take the time to look beyond the fine silk socks in a moment of eyes, not ears, in a moment of you and only you, but not how you and me and all of the people have nothing to do. It's never how can I support you. The difference between love in a bed is love on a couch. The difference between your bottom bitch is your love on top. It's like 2008 banks. 
We've done it once, maybe twice. Maybe you're like me and have ignored it. Maybe you know who you are and are reading things over and over and tossing the book to the rug and thinking, this guy's full of shit, fuck poetry. Or I'm standing at the shell of someone I bought beer and chips for and he says, I'm a wordsmith, a manipulative robot. Maybe I've sold myself and reviewed it in my bio. Maybe I'm looking like a cynic or a lonely train sleeper. Maybe I'm just trying to figure it out so I can get a good review. Let whatever you want, want you. And let you want it. When it doesn't, it will, because it will when it happens. It happens when it does, and not when you want it to. Hey, friends. Hey. Uh, Thank you very much for listening to our first issue. That's it. That was the first one. That's it. We're we done. did it. We did it. <laughs> um, so now we're going to leave you with a little gem we like to call Scout and Birdie on the Streets. This is Scout and Birdie Scout reporting Birdie. live from the Lover's Spat on Sheridan. Any thoughts, Anna? Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, wow. When a man is only wearing his socks, you got to assume something's going really bad. Oh my gosh, yes. The way he booked it out of there? He booked it out of his apartment. He looked around left to right, and then he went left again, and he went spouting off down there. But then he paused. Maybe he was second-guessing his decision. Hmm. Maybe he didn't want a spat. We're only presuming it's a lover's spat. We don't really know. Hmm. Great. Thank you for being here with us. At this lover's spat. We'll keep you updated. <laughs>